0: Psalm 120, or uh, you may remember we just finished singing that, so it is printed entirely in your bulletin, so you can reference it there if you prefer. As we begin uh, a series of preaching on select psalms, there is a temptation to do an introduction to the Psalter in general. I will try to resist that temptation. However, as we are beginning this mini-series with Psalm 120, the first of the Psalms of Ascent a few words about the Psalms of Ascent may prove helpful. Now, the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134, making 15 of them. There are several interpretations and many ideas about when these were composed, how they were used, etc. Uh, many favor that these 15 psalms were sung in sequence by Hebrew pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem for the three feast days, or three feasts, Oftentimes lasted weeks. Jerusalem was the highest city in Palestine, about 2,800 feet above sea level. So wherever you were coming from during these three times of year, you were literally going up as you went to Jerusalem. So you were singing psalms of ascending, psalms of going up. Again, in Exodus 23 and Exodus 34, we see that three times a year, faithful Hebrews made this trip to Jerusalem. The Hebrews were a people whose salvation had been accomplished in the Exodus, So they went up to Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover in the spring. Their identity had been defined at Sinai, so they renewed their commitment to the covenant by attending the Feast of Pentecost in the early summer. And they were also a people who had been preserved during 40 years of wilderness wandering. And they learned who God was as they went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, generally in the autumn. Now, there are also intriguing literary considerations. The first, simply a question, uh, did you notice which psalm comes before Psalm 120? 119, you guys are brilliant. But what is 119 about? The entire Psalm 119 is about the law of God. So God's law begins our ascent to him. It is how we get to him. It begins the climb. And this is the same pattern we find in Exodus. What happens in Exodus chapter 20? We get the law of God. And then in Exodus 24, the people go up and worship. The Psalms of Ascent or the Psalms of Ascending are 15 in number, according to one interpretation, because there is a connection being made to the 15 steps that led up to the court of Israel in the temple. A psalm for every step. Psalm 120 itself is actually structured like an ascent. The words actually climb in a stair-like manner. For example, if you look at verse 2, you see a deceitful tongue is mentioned in verse 2, and then that is repeated in verse 3. The most obvious case, verse 5, states, Woe to me that I dwell, specific use of that word, among the tents of Kedar. And then verse 6 includes the word to dwell, too long if I had my dwelling. But then verse 6 introduces a new word, peace, which is then repeated again in verse 7. So the psalm itself, with the words chosen, kind of steps up and forward. Now thematically, uh, Eugene Peterson is helpful. He gives a one-word description of all the psalms of ascent. And he categorizes Psalm 120 as repentance. Now, this makes sense considering the placement of the psalm following 119. Again, 119 is the celebration of the law of God. And what does the law of God do? Well, it reveals how much we are not what we should be, how much we lack. A true, honest look at God's law, and we see ourselves, as we truly are, distressed. And how does Psalm 120 begin? In my distress. That is how we begin our ascent, recognizing our distress. The law points out our insufficiency, and so we call out from within a position of distress or helplessness. So I think repentance is a good word to describe this psalm. But specifically, and where I want to spend our time this morning, specifically what does this psalm call us to repent of? Deliver me, O Yahweh, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. You notice the reference to the warrior's sharp arrows, because arrows, like words, can do damage even from a great distance. The coals of a broom tree, when you thought that those specific coals were extinguished, these coals could actually retain the fire in the very center. Or said differently, words are able to burn even when you think you've dealt with them. A deceitful tongue, lying words last. They don't just go away. Interestingly, this has been demonstrated neurologically. Your words, speech is, the mechanism that guides your life. You kind of hear that in James' epistle. And if you pathologize the mechanism that guides you through life, you do yourself in. Your words serve as a guiding instinct. So the last thing you want to do is warp your guide. And that is what you do when you lie and warp your words and bend and twist them. You are literally perverting your guide in life. And if you do this habitually, if you repeat this over and over, you build a habit. And when you build a habit, you actually build new neurological mechanisms physiologically in your brain. And that will twist and distort the manner in which the world manifests itself to you. So if you make lying, if I make lying a habit, you no longer have the ability to see the world as it is. Because your filter is Twisted and bent, your guide is perverted. And that will, and we see this all the time happening, it will ruin you. Lying actually warps the manner in which you perceive things, and it becomes automatic, subconscious. You won't even be able to see it. One of the reasons lying is so dangerous. The psalmist focuses our attention on our words. Now, lying may be one way of coming at this, but I think another angle that... I hope, proves more beneficial. We need to not just repent of lying, not just repent of being deceitful, but we need to repent of being untruthful. I've mentioned this before, but I think specifically in this context it bears repeating. When we think of the concentration camps, Nazi Germany, or the gulags of the Soviet Union, death camps, when we look at the things that human beings have done to other human beings, we might wonder how. And it can seem so foreign, so alien, so impossible, so unthinkable, that often we remove ourselves from those people, and we somehow convince ourselves that they are, well, a different species. We could never. We would never. But I think that's to be just as misguided as they were. This question is not original to me, but I do think it's one worth considering. How could you become an Auschwitz guard? How could you stand by while millions of people are worked to death? How does that happen? So that's that's kind of the question that I want to loom this morning. We often live as persona, meaning we live in such a way as to get people to like us. And we get people to like us primarily through our speech, how we respond, what we say, how we say it, and very often by what we don't say. This is something that Stanley Hauerbos points out, that simply not lying doesn't mean that we are truthful. Paul in Ephesians points out the same thing that this psalm does. Truthfulness is so important for our ability to live at peace with each other. Deceit and lying are anti-peace. It's war, arrows, and coals. Most of us have relationships in which we are not truthful. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a sibling, a child, or parents, in-laws. Maybe there are people in the church that you are really not truthful with. And in those relationships, we live in dialogue, speech. So as an example this morning, I'm going to take a very stereotypical relationship. We'll talk about in-laws. Making sure you're not groaning, right? Okay. If we're talking about in-laws, and okay, we'll use like your mother-in-law as an example, we'll kind of draw on the everybody loves Raymond motif. Let's say your mother-in-law says to you, I want to take your kids to McDonald's for dinner. In this pretend scenario, you don't want your kids eating at McDonald's. You want to order pizza, play a game, and watch a movie. But you want to avoid conflict, and you want your in-laws or your mother-in-law to like you. So you just say yes to your in-laws in-laws come, take the kids, and off to McDonald's. And you spend the rest of the night frustrated and resentful and bitter and in a bad mood, and you take it out on your spouse and the dog. Why do you feel like this? At least in part, because you didn't speak the truth. You didn't just tell them, no, not not tonight. And why didn't you say that? Because you were worried about how they would take that. You were worried about how they would view you, how they would view your parenting and your decision-making. And your desire to be liked got in the way of truth. And what's perverse about this is that you think in saying yes, you are helping the relationship. When in actuality, you are ruining the relationship in the long term. Many reasons, one being because you are becoming the kind of person who can't say no. Not only are you becoming the kind of person who can't say no, but you are also becoming more bitter towards your in-laws rather than more endeared toward them. And at the same time, you dislike yourself more and more, which makes you feel worse. So, I want to back up. Why does this happen as an example? For starters. I would argue that perhaps you are confusing conflict with sin. As if to have a disagreement is wrong. When in reality, not having the disagreement and working through it is at least more wrong, if not just plain wrong. And if you manifested a proper commitment to truth, rather than a commitment to likability... You can speak the truth and learn how to speak the truth and you cannot hate yourself and you cannot hate your in-laws and wouldn't that be better? But many, many today in the world and the church have confused likability with Christianity. You have to develop a determined, assertive posture with your words. And what this will do is this will keep people from feeling like they have to dance around you. Because when you start saying yes, when you mean no... People can't figure you out. They have to dance around your words because your words don't mean anything, or at least they don't mean what you're saying. But if you say no when you mean no and yes when you mean yes, well, that simplifies you. And people know that what you say is what you mean, and that gives peace. But again, many people have confused truth with likability, thinking that if I'm a likable person, that must mean I'm speaking the truth. And people confuse being liked with being good or moral. And therefore, being disliked ever at all is bad. And you're a bad person if you're disliked. Now, just quickly, was Jesus liked? Does it seem like he was after likability? He did a terrible job if he was. But again, for many Christians, morality is linked with likability. And perhaps you are the kind of person that thinks this way. You think that you shouldn't do anything that causes conflict. And you shouldn't do anything that hurts other people's feelings. And you think that by not ever hurting anyone's feelings, that makes you a good person. It doesn't. You aren't a good person. You're just a punching bag. A doormat. Well, to be specific, a vengeful, bitter, resentful doormat. What does the psalmist say? I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. A commitment to truth will cause conflict. In fact, a commitment to truth is a commitment to conflict in some way. But again, conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. If you don't speak truth, and you have things to say, but you aren't willing to try and say them, then you're just as naive as a puppet, a marionette, meaning everyone else has the strings. Everyone else has control over you, because you have no truthful words. You are and you will be manipulated by anyone and everyone who wants to manipulate you. You have to develop some some strength, some daring, some fortitude in your speech. And perhaps some of you, in your relationships with people, you, you don't say no. You can't say no. And you just let what other people want to have happen, that's what happens. Again, this results in at least two things. You dislike yourself, and you really dislike those people that run over you. Now maybe some of you are thinking, well, I've tried to say no, I've actually said no, and it doesn't work. I've tried to put my foot down, or I've tried to speak truthfully, and yet with maybe certain people, they immediately ask you why. Why? Why no? Why yes? And you aren't good at articulating why you want to stay home and eat pizza and watch a movie. Besides the fact that's what you want to do. So you say no to McDonald's, your in-laws say why, and you say, I don't know. And then your in-laws come up with five reasons why their idea is better. Spending time with grandparents is good. In fact, it's better than going to see a movie. McDonald's is just as unhealthy as the pizza you're going to order, and they will get them something healthy like apple slices or yogurt. And plus, besides, they haven't seen them in a while. And what happened? Well, you just got out argued They gave more reasons for what they wanted than you could for what you wanted. So now you're thinking and feeling you have to change your answer, give in, and so you do, and you change your no to yes. My suggestion, first, when you say no, just say no. Don't say why. You're not obligated to give reasons. If people trust you more than they want to control you, they will take you at your word. And if they do say why, this is where speaking truth becomes very important, if they do say why, you don't have to answer that, or at least be truthful in the way that you answer that. Don't make something up. Be truthful. Say, no, not tonight. They say, why? You say, I don't know, but not tonight. And when they give all their reasons, you can say, man, those are really good reasons, but I've already made my decision. Embrace the conflict. And this is true for not just family, but friends and your boss. Speak the truth. And I think here's a key, and maybe have already picked this up. Here's a key to speaking truth. You have to develop some inner strength to go along with your truth. One of our companion readings from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, a verse that has always confused me until roughly about a year ago when I read and listened to some people talk about this, but I never understood it. It didn't make sense. I didn't have the categories for it. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth? When we think of meek, typically, generally, we think of weak, harmless, soft, gentle. If he's meek or he's a meek man, we typically think he's soft-spoken, kind of gets walked on, pushed around, maybe a little wishy-washy, indecisive, or nice. When we think of meek, we typically know more what meek is not, right? Right? If you're meek, that means you couldn't be aggressive, you couldn't be assertive, you couldn't be combative, you couldn't be controversial and never engage in conflict, of course. And if you look up synonyms for "meek," you will find "docile," timid, gentle" in the English dictionary. Those are the synonyms. Someone that is meek wouldn't hurt a fly, couldn't hurt a fly. That's the way we generally conceptualize it, at least I do. Now there's a couple problems right off the bat. First, how in the world is that a virtue? But second, from a man's perspective, well, that doesn't look like almost any of the men we see in Scripture at all. So if you drill down a bit more on the Greek word meek, you realize that our English word meek really isn't the best translation, or possibly our English word has just moved over the last couple hundred years to mean something it didn't originally mean. So let's fix it. The best summary that I found of what meek in the Greek means something like this. Those who have swords and know how to use them, but keep them sheathed, they will inherit the world. The idea is extreme power under control. Unbridled strength bridled. The word in classical Greek was used to describe a wild animal, generally a horse, that was controlled, tame. A wild, powerful stallion broken in and now ready to perform in battle. In a person, someone who is unusually skilled, competent, and dangerous, but in command of that strength. Aristotle explained it as the balancing or the controlling of excessive anger. Christians should be raw power under control. Not harmless or nice, getting run over a doormat. No, power, extreme competence, excellence. A meek person is in command, so they always remain balanced, stable. They are not a puppet. A meek person is a man of war who is not controlled or goaded by the actions of his enemies or other men. A meek man is not controlled by anyone else, but rather is self-controlled. Many great examples of this one example of this type of meekness would be Odysseus, who has to sneak into his own city of which he is king as a beggar, and endure the beatings and the mockings and the goadings of men who are pillaging, looting, stealing, laying waste to his land, his kingdom, mistreating his manservants and maidservants, trying to get his wife and kill his son. And yet he remains in all his strength and skill and might and vigor, sheathed. Or you could think of King David, one of the greatest warriors Israel has ever seen, enduring the the cursings of Shimei. I think... You could even conceptualize the incarnation as the Almighty God sheathed in Jesus of Nazareth. It's not a sin to be strong. It's not a sin to be steadfast. It's not a sin to be confident. It's not a sin to engage in conflict. In fact, who is Israel? Speaking of conflict, do you remember why God changes Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel and what Israel means? Israel means he is one who wrestled with God, who contends with God and man, who enters into conflict with God. God's people are those who contend with him and with one another. And oftentimes we contend with him by contending with one another. And in order to tell the truth, you're going to have to be strong and work at becoming stronger. Because if you don't know how to say no and stand by your no, even in the face of pressure and manipulation, or put it this way, if you can't say no to your mother-in-law, how are you going to say no to the Gestapo? You won't. And you will be standing outside guarding a death camp. You will be the kind of person who watches as dying, starving people carry hundred pounds bag, hundred pound bags of rocks from one part of the camp to the other pointlessly until they die. If you don't commit yourself to not lying and speaking the truth, you are de facto committing yourself to violence. If people continue to do what they want with you and manipulate you and slice you up with all their reasons, when you have things to say and you aren't saying them because you want to be liked, then you become controlled by anyone and everyone around you. And you will therefore just go with the flow of the culture. You'll go with the mob or the masses because you don't even know how to say no to your mob or speak truthfully to a friend or an acquaintance at church. And if you can't speak truthfully to them, how are you going to say no to a mass of violent, angry people? As Chesterton said, even a dead thing can go with the flow. It takes a living thing to go against it. If you are going to speak the truth, you're going to have to grow some teeth. And one one scholar points out that you might think that that, again, violates your morality, growing some teeth. You think that you shouldn't be able to bite people. You think Christians shouldn't be able to bite people. The thing is, yes, you should be able to bite people, and hard. Because generally, if you can, you won't have to. But others need to know that you can. Because if you can't and you won't, they, whoever they is... Nazis, it doesn't matter, will continue to encroach and manipulate and pressure and control you and do whatever they want with you. Again, Christians especially have this temptation to think being a good person means not engaging in conflict. And so if your end game is never engaging in conflict, you're going to never end up doing the things, sharpening the skills necessary, practicing the abilities required to be able to engage in conflict when conflict comes. And it will come into your life if it hasn't already. And if you never develop the the skills and the tools to handle conflict, then your whole life you will do whatever people want you to do. Even if it is evil. We have to be meek, skilled, have some teeth. You have to have a sword, know how to use it, and keep it sheathed. Committed to truth. Now, another another way to say this, or what this leads to us clarifying, is that to be truthful doesn't mean that we must say what needs to be said bluntly and without any filter. Being truthful is not just being out of control with your words. Many people think that they ought to tell it like it is, or say whatever they're thinking and feeling. But but that's not skilled, that's not meek. Stanley Hauerwas again points this out, that people often confuse candor, and truthfulness. To just tell it like it is, that's not truthfulness. Usually that's lazy, unskilled speech. Again, Hauerwas, quote, The truth will often hurt, but that doesn't mean that hurting someone is an indication of having told the truth. So we don't just think that if we blurt out whatever we're thinking, or, oh, this needs to be said right now, bluntly, that we're being Truthful. Just the opposite is often the case. Being meek, in this case, being truthful, means saying what needs to be said in such a manner that it can be received. Being truthful means speaking skillfully. That is why I think meekness is so deeply connected to truth. Telling the truth is a skill. And as Bonhoeffer pointed out, telling the truth is something which must be learned. Obvious question. If we have to learn something, you may wonder, I wondered, well, how long is that going to take to learn to tell the truth? To be delivered from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue? How long? Our entire lives. There is no end to learning to speak the truth. There's no end to learning. Because as you try to speak the truth, you're going to do it badly. You'll screw it up, you'll hurt someone unnecessarily, have to repent of that and try again, you'll say things badly and you have to practice again and again and again and over and over and over. Learning to speak the truth, engaging in the process that is not lying and figuring out how to tell the truth, conforming to the truth, and skillfully applying it, it is what should make up the rest of our lives. It's a journey. It's a pilgrimage. The author gestures to that fact in Psalm 120 as he wanders in Meshach and the tents of Kedar. He's in alien land. He, he's a pilgrim. He's an exile. To think that you have arrived, to think that you have arrived and you know the truth and you know how to speak the truth and you've figured it out in this perfect formula, well, that is only to think you have arrived. And the danger of that is that you may begin to worship what you already know. The temptation of rationality is powerful. In fact, I would argue, at least at this point in my life, and I may have to fix this later, but at this point in my life, I think it is the greatest temptation. We might think we know Satan, right? He's the father of lies. But according to many of the greatest thinkers and theologians, they knew him as the spirit of reason or rationality. And reason is alive. It's alive in all of us. One author writes this commenting on Satan's lust for rationality. Quote, reason is best understood as a personality, not a faculty. It has its aims and its temptations and weaknesses. It flies higher and sees farther than any other spirit. But reason falls in love with itself. And worse, reason falls in love with its own creations. So reason desires to worship its own creations as absolute. Reason desires to worship its own doctrines, its own answers, its dogmas, philosophies, ideologies, ideas become gods. I think this is one of the reasons why the Protestant church is split 3,000 different ways. John Milton writes describing Satan, quote, as one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. It is the greatest temptation of the rational faculty to glorify its own capacity, to glorify its own productions, and to claim that in the face of its theories, nothing else is needed. We're good here. We're reformed. We got it figured out, right? This is a temptation to act as though everything that needs to be discovered or known has been discovered and is known. To think that we have it all figured out, settled, fixed. To live as though all that you know is all that needs to be known. Again, that's the spirit of Lucifer. Our lives must be constituted by a love for truth. A life conforming to truth. Putting away falsehood necessitates realizing your distress, your constant need, and never ceasing to call on the Lord. At the table, we encounter both Truth and lying lips. We literally sit before what happens, both when men do not speak the truth and what happens when we are committed to the truth. If you are, if we are not committed to truth, we commit ourselves to violence and we will murder the innocent, even God. But if we, in imitation of the Son of God, commit ourselves to truth and necessarily conflict, we will find our lives intertwined or caught up in the Logos, the truth. And even though we die, yet we shall live again. Beloved in Christ, this is the Lord's Supper This meal does not belong to Sand Hills Presbyterian Church. It does not belong to the men who serve you. It does not belong only to Presbyterians. It is the Lord's. It belongs to all who have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This table is for all who are distressed and who seek truth. If this is true of you, welcome in the name of Jesus. Almighty God, we do not presume to come to this your table, trusting in our own righteousness, then your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, that as we eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and drink his blood, that we would commit ourselves to putting away falsehood, that we would commit ourselves to speaking the truth, that we would commit ourselves to the conflict, that we would commit ourselves to being meek. We pray this in Jesus' name